Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6. As you know, poll after poll continues to show in America that 85 to 90% of Americans claim to be Christian. And you and I sit there and we wonder, well, if 80 or 90% are claiming to be Christian, our country would be completely different. The whole entire landscape would be different. In fact, if you want to know what our country looked like when it was predominantly, let's say, 75 to 80% evangelical born again, you have to go back to the revolution period. In the late 1700s, yes, we could boast of that high of a number in the American populace. And think about this. When that number was that high, that group of people who were led by the pastors, the Black Robe Regimen, led the people of America to go against what Britain was saying because they were doing things that were incorrect to us. And so we actually had a biblical reason for coming against Britain and what they were doing, and that was led by Bible-believing Christians and the backing of Scripture to do that. You think about that they had the spine back then to deal with what they're dealing with. They wouldn't have allowed half or maybe probably 100% of what's going on in our culture today. So you tell me, do you really think that number is 90% of Americans are Christian? I do not think so, my friend. I wonder sometimes, is it 15%? Is it 10%? Some estimate 8% in America are true Bible-believing Christians. I think that's probably more accurate, 8%. Just based on what churches and Christians allow not only in their life, but in their lives of their family and for what they allow in their churches. It's got to be lower than that because you wouldn't see a culture this decrepit sliding towards Sodom as we see today. So the message to the church of Sardis, which is the dead church, and dead meaning it has no spiritual life, It doesn't mean an empty cathedral. The church could actually have a lot of activities. It is talking to churches and believers who claim to be Christian, but are not. They're dead spiritually, have not been born again. And that would probably answer why so many in our country identify as Christians, but simply do not live it out. It's because they're not. They're fakes. They're not real. So this answers the question of why do so many Christians accept and tolerate all that's going on? They're not even the real thing. That's why. And so this message you're going to see to the church of Sardis is direct aim to those who sit there week after week in a pew, warming that pew for 30 and 40 years, going to Bible studies, going to church, going to all the activities of a church, and yet deader than a doornail, going straight to hell, and going to be told, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. That's who this message is for. So today I might be speaking not to you directly. I'm speaking to people probably that are outside in our culture. But I think it's important for you and I as believers, as the remnant, the Philadelphia church, 
to understand the concept and what's going on and how this plays into the end times. Because this deadness of a church, these Christians who think they're believers and are not, are going to be warned in this passage that you're going to be left behind. You're going to be left for the Antichrist. You're going to be left for the whore of Babylon. In fact, they are creating themselves to be put into the whore of Babylon. That's what their churches are becoming, is incorporating the harlot. Well, anyway, we'll get to that. But we want to understand a couple things before we get into this. The way we interpret the seven churches in Revelation, seven meaning they're complete, it's perfect, it's a message to the entire church age, not just to individual churches. Yes, the application is is several issues. The application goes directly to that historical situation that was happening when John was writing this in 95 AD. That's a correct application. A secondary application is that it's for the church of all time. There have been the Sardis church that's always existed, a dead church. And then you get into what's called a historical prophetic application, which means that we're looking at epochs or eras of time. And I'll talk about that, that it's in chronological order. And remember, John is the first one who put prophecy in chronological order. So when you see the seven churches, they're in chronological order, how they will come out in time in the church age. And then the fourth application is a direct application for you and I sitting in the pew as believers. So we'll look at it from all those different standpoints. That's why sometimes preaching through the book of Revelation can be very difficult for a lot of people because there's a lot of points of application, a lot of errors are crossing over, and it's my job to make it as clear as I possibly can. I hope I can do that. It gets difficult sometimes. Let's start with what we've seen, and I have some pictures of the church of Sardis or the remains of it. It's the dead church, obviously. All the seven churches were in Asia Minor or what we consider Turkey today. And you can see number five, what we're dealing with is Sardis. This is the mail route. Actually, the mail route actually went clockwise, ending up in Laodicea. Now, what we start seeing, though, is a pattern in the layout of the churches. In that clockwise pattern, you can see the stages of what happens. And we're in the stage of the church age where we're seeing that they have a good reputation but there's no reality behind the reputation. So we went through Ephesus losing our first love. Smyrna is the persecuted church. Pergamum has allowed false doctrine into it. Thyatira or Thyatira has allowed the whore to come in and introduce false doctrine now. And then Sardis is trying to get away from that, but is failing in many aspects to escape, and they end up dead. I'll explain that as we go through. So let me show you some archaeological pictures of it real quick. This is the actual synagogue that was still, you still see the ruins that was there in the day when the church of Sardis was there. Let's go to the next one. You can see kind of how Sardis was and its capitals and and they had the Acropolis. And here's uh, one of the church's altars, the old church. It was a Byzantine church that's still left there today. And I think we have one more picture, I think. And this is actually the gymnasium that would have been there the, the day, the same day the Church of Sardis in 95 AD. It still stands today. Isn't that amazing? Little side note, and you might think this is kind of funny. If you ever go on uh, Jeopardy, you guys ever go on Jeopardy? I don't know if you ever will or if you're playing Trivial Pursuit. 
If the question asks, did King Midas really exist? You have to answer, yes, he did. This is the town of King Midas, believe it or not. Now, where does the legend come from? The king's name was actually Croesus. And in the river that comes through Sardis, they had found a lot of gold dust. And so much so, that's what made Sardis very wealthy was its gold dust. And that king became very, very rich, and he took on the name King Midas. And so we have today in our common vernacular, like he has the Midas touch, everything he turns to gold. That's where this came from, is this city of Sardis. Now, what it did, it made them become... Uh, having a high reputation, it was def- it had major defenses. It was just impregnable. You could not attack Sardis, but it ended up showing that you actually could. I'll come to that in just a bit. Let's go to the first point and start dealing with the nuts and bolts of it. First point is this: Sardis. The name Sardis means those escaping, and this church condition dominated the era of A.D. 1517 to 1648. That era represents the Reformation period. The Reformation started in 1517, and the Peace of Westphalia between the Protestants and Catholics happened in 1648. Sometimes people extended to 1700. But you're looking, give or take, that era of church history. Before we get into the verse, escaping from what is the natural question. Sardis means escaping. It is reference to escaping from the church of Thyatira or Thyatira or the Catholic Church. We know it today as the third branch of Christendom called Protestantism. At this point in church history, we have three branches of Christianity, just as Jesus said in the parables in Matthew 13, that it would actually be three loaves representing Christianity. The first one, obviously, was split between the Catholic Church and Eastern Orthodox. And then now you're seeing the split of those escaping between Catholics and Protestants. Those are the three loaves that exist today. So guess what? You are in the category of the third loaf, the ones that are escaping the Sardis church. Now, it doesn't mean that you're a Sardis type of believer. It just means you're in that era of time. You're not Catholic, nor are you Eastern Orthodox. You're in the Protestant camp. That being the case, we end up seeing later on in the book of Revelation that there's different things that spring out of the Sardis church, like the Philadelphia church. We'll talk about the Philadelphia. We're more of the Philadelphia church than anything. Point number two, then, before we uh, get into the real deep stuff, some nuts and bolts, Jesus then is described as the one who gifts the Holy Spirit to his church and the one who will judge the dead church by angels during the tribulation. Now, let me explain this a little bit. He goes in verse 1b, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. The idea who has is a relational term and the seven spirits of God refer to the Holy Spirit. When the scriptures refer to the Holy Spirit having the seven spirits of God, it's talking about the multiple ministries of the Holy Spirit. It's a reference to Isaiah 11 And the Holy Spirit has seven different types of ministry. All seven ministries were on the Messiah when he was on earth, by the way. So it's a a relational term because here's what happens. Jesus is referring to this church in what they need. 
They are dead, which means they're unregenerate. They do not possess the Holy Spirit. They're not born again. When you and I become born again, we possess the Holy Spirit as a down payment of our salvation. So he's addressing them with the very thing they need. They need the Holy Spirit because they're not regenerated. And, and honestly, the Holy Spirit is the one who does the work of regeneration. So he's addressing them with that which they lack, regeneration. So what Jesus is indicating to the Sardis church is the very thing they need is salvation that he can give them, and the Holy Spirit can regenerate them. Now, here's the deal. We understand that concept. We've all been saved, hopefully, and you've made that decision for Christ. But these people haven't. These are Christians who think they're saved, but they're lost as a ball in high weeds. They sit and go to church, but they're lost. I'll explain the difference in a little bit, and we'll get into that more. But that's who he's addressing. But then he throws in, I also have the seven stars. The seven stars refer back to Revelation 1, refer to angels who are assigned duty to different churches. We have an angel probably assigned to our church. There is an angel assigned to the Sardis church and the era. Now, what will happen with this This angel, the angel is given the message also. He's hearing what's going on in the church because angels are not omniscient. So Jesus is telling these angels. And what is the role of these angels? These angels will carry out the punishment and the correction that Jesus is warning the church about. So this church, as you'll see later, will be cast into the great tribulation and that angel will be assigned to judge the Sardis church because it's dead. If the rapture were to happen, the Sardis believer will be left behind because they're dead. They're not regenerated. So that's kind of where he's going with this. So Jesus is the key and the solution to their problems. And let's see what he tells them. Point number three, Jesus condemns the church for their reputation not matching reality. That's the crux of the matter. Their reputation does not match reality. Look at verse 1. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive. Let's just pause there and flush that out. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive. Here's the deal. The Sardis church has plenty of programs, plenty of activity. I do not want you to think of the Sardis church of being an empty cathedral like in Europe that's just dead and no one's there. That's not the image. They're very active. There's a lot of programming. They have a great reputation among men. So if you were to walk into this church today, you would say, wow, there's a lot of life there. There's a lot of activities there. There's a lot of programs there. It's the mega church phenomenon in reality. And see, people are fooled to think that activity means spiritual life. And it doesn't. The Mormons are active. The Jehovah Witnesses are active. They claim to be Christian, but they're part of that Sardis church. They're very active. A lot of things, a lot of members, a lot of activities, a lot of money. They're deader in a doornail spiritually. They are not alive. That's the point. Don't get fooled by activity. Let me make a historical note, what's called the historical prophetic note, so you can understand what was happening. This era of church history represents 
Protestantism or the Reformation era. This is when Martin Luther and them broke away from the Catholic Church. He nailed the 95 Thesis on the wall. And you guys know the whole story about that and how it started. And they did have a reputation, and they still do, of doing a few good things. And we will tip our hats to that. But they still have a reputation of not doing a lot of good things. Now, what some of the reformers did is they, they broke away from the Catholic Church. Remember, these were priests not really wanting to break away from the Catholic Church, but re- try to f- reform it. That's why it's called the Reformation. They tried to reform the Catholic Church. And one of the issues they figured out, finally, or rediscovered, is justification by faith alone. And we can all tip our hat for that. Thank you. Because the Catholic Church was teaching works-based salvation, and still do to this day. So the Protestant Reformation was born out of justification by faith alone. And basically, you have the five solas. You might have heard them. Faith alone, grace alone, scriptures alone. We all would agree with that. Christ alone for salvation. We would all agree with that. And for God's glory alone. None of us in here would disagree with the five solas. But then they also got rid of a lot of Catholic and pagan practices. They got rid of indulgences, purgatories, prayers to Mary and the saints. They got rid of transubstantiation, but didn't go far enough. They did consubstantiation, that Jesus was present with the hosts. They rejected the authority of the Pope. They rejected celibacy of the priests. They rejected sacraments for salvation and a works-based type of salvation. So they did some good things, and we will tip our hats to those reformers for, for, for going that far. And they had decent creeds, and that's... And decent biblical doctrine, Well, I, and I use the word decent, I'm qualifying it, because they didn't go far enough in their doctrine. They didn't develop anything outside of soteriology. In fact, they muddied up the waters in some regards in soteriology with their theological determinism. But they had decent creeds, and Christ is commending them for that alone. That gives them a good reputation. But that's as far as it went. He says, but you are dead. You are dead. Your churches, Sardis, are dead. They didn't go far enough in the Reformation. What do you mean by that? Well, let's just talk about what this idea of being dead is. Being dead spiritually means you're separated from God. Death in Scripture always means a separation from God. So they're separated from, they have no life. There's no relationship with God. But yet they call themselves Christians, yes. Well, they might have a lot of external activities, a lot of external works, but it doesn't mean life. Now, Jesus warned the church, warns us, that I'm going to create the church, but in the church you're going to have two types of people. It's not going to be a pure assembly. Neither was Israel, right? Only a remnant believed in Yahweh and Israel, and the rest of them did not. But yet they were still considered Israelites. Well, in Christendom, you have both aspects. You have what's called the wheat and the tares. And he gave a parable about that. Do we have that picture of of wheat and tares? Okay. Jesus said, and he gave a parable, that an enemy came into his field and spread tares, or what we call darnel. And you can see this today. In the Middle East, the tares will grow right alongside the wheat. The thing is, you can see how closely wheat and darnel look like each other, especially in the early stages of wheat. You can't tell the difference. The only way you can tell the difference is at harvest time. 
And at harvest time, we will take on that color, but Darnell actually will turn black. And that's, it's at harvest time is the only time you can tell. Do you see how the parable of wheat and tares works into eschatology or the idea of end times? You and I basically saying we'll not be able to tell who the real deal is. And so in the parable, he says, the angels came at the end and separated the wheat and the tares. It says, let the darnel grow up alongside the wheat. For an uprooting the darnel or the tares, you will damage the wheat. So let them grow up together in the same household. Let them grow up in the same church. Don't do anything until the end, until the harvest. And we can tell who is their true wheat and who's the fake. Well, therein lies... You and I are dilemma. In a church like us, we're very conservative. People who are part of the Sardis Church ain't going to last too long here. We're going to get under their skin pretty quick. But you and I know there's plenty of churches out there that the Darnell and the Terrors can do just fine sitting there week after week and never being convicted about anything. You know what I'm talking about. You know there's plenty of people in your family Plenty of people that you know at work that say they're Christians and are not. They are that. They are the Darnell. They might actually have good creeds. They might actually go on mission trips. They might actually go do things that you would say it's very Christian. In fact, they might act very, very Christian. But you and I will not be able to tell who the real deal is. You can suspect it. But at the end of the day, you will not be able to tell. Only Jesus knows who the difference is, and he will separate the two at the end. But this is a message to those who are sitting there claiming to be Christians and are not. So that being said, what happened, Brandon? Give me some history about it. Now, if you like history, this will be good for you. If you don't, it's worth hearing because you need to know what happened. What are we seeing today as a result of this going on, of this dead Sardis church? Well, like I said, the reformers didn't go far enough. They did a few good things. They had some decent creeds, decent statements of faith, but they made major, major errors. And I want to give you those errors. The first error is because they were still Catholic priests trying to reform the church, they carried with them the same hermeneutic or way of interpreting Scripture as the Catholics did which the Catholics used Augustine's spiritualization or allegorization method in interpreting the Scriptures. And so that's why some Reformed churches today interpret the Scriptures just like a Catholic does as far as ecclesiology or eschatology, the things of the last days and the study of the church, especially prophecy. They will be very Catholic in that regard, and they're following Augustine, basically. Here's the deal. What you have to understand is the remnant of the church. You take the scriptures in the sense they're supposed to be taken, literally. Not a wooden literal sense, but literally. If it says Israel, it means Israel, not the church. What Augustine did is he borrowed from origin from the school of Alexandria, which developed uh, from Greek thought, and they started spiritualizing the text. So when they saw the word Israel, they would pour into it a different meaning and say, well, that's not Israel, that's the church. Or when they see the Antichrist, they would say, that's not a person, that's a concept. And they would start pouring into their own meanings into the scriptures. 
and it fouled up biblical interpretation for nearly 1,500 years. The church fathers prior to Augustine in the first three centuries saw prophecy the way you and I see it. They interpreted Scripture the way you and I did. The school of Antioch interpreted it literally. They were premillennial in their eschatology. But when the school of Alexandria with Origen and then Augustine becoming the champion of that and that ruling the Catholic Church, all the original fathers who believed in free will, believed in premillennialism, it got buried under Augustine. And that happened with the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church picked up his way of interpreting Scripture and buried it. It wasn't until the Plymouth Brethren, out of the Protestant Reformation, decided to say, we need to read this literally. And then all of a sudden, what happened? Ecclesiology, eschatology, all became very easy to understand. It's in a literal sense. God has a plan for Israel. It was the Plymouth Brethren who finally figured out, oh, God has a plan for Israel. Because why? They took it literally. They came out from under even the reformers who were still interpreting Scripture in an allegorization way and finally broke away from that. That's why when you go to a Lutheran church or some type of covenant theology church, their view of eschatology will be the same as Augustine. They're either amillennialists, no millennium, no kingdom, or postmillennial, which is the big problem today. People think they're going to usher in the kingdom without Jesus. They create the kingdom and then Jesus comes back. That's very postmillennial, but that's very Catholic. That's very, we're going to change the world for Christ. That's the Catholic mindset. They're going to Christianize the whole world and then Jesus comes back. It's the exact opposite according to Scripture. The whole world goes to hell, and then Jesus comes back. That's how it goes. But you can only get there if you take it literally. And so ends up, what happened is, the Protestants, like Martin Luther, and like Calvin, like Zwingli, they interpreted Scripture just like a Catholic. And hence, Catholicism is still with us in Protestantism. Their ecclesiology is virtually Catholic. Their eschatology, which is the study of the last days, it's all Catholic. And then the dreaded replacement theology was incorporated. What do you mean replacement theology? Later on, into the 3rd and 4th century, the church fathers were mainly Gentile. And they were having problems with the Jews. They became thoroughly anti-Semitic. Thoroughly. In fact, that anti-Semitism stayed within the Catholic Church to this day, their replacement theology. The reformers who broke away from the Catholic Church were still having replacement theology. What do you mean? Most people don't tell you this, but Luther was anti-Semitic. He thought that, well, I've got this glorious gospel. I'm going to take the gospel to the Jews, and then they're going to accept their Messiah. Well, he did that, and guess what? They rejected him, just like they rejected the Apostle Paul. And you know what Luther did? He turned on them. In fact, Luther trapped them in their synagogue and burned them to death. The early reformers were anti-Semites. In fact, it was Hitler who used Luther's writings to fuel the German people to exterminate the Jews. Thank you very much, Luther. You see, that comes from Augustine. He developed replacement theology along with Origen and the School of Alexandria, and that stayed today. In fact, that's why the majority, I would say 75% of the churches out here are replacement theology. They have no concern whatsoever with Israel. I'm not saying they're anti-Semitic. I'm just saying that's what can lead to it. It stems from replacement theology. God is still going to use Israel, and he has a plan and a purpose for them. 
They are not cast away. They're in a timeout, and he will use them again. But the majority of churches don't teach anything about Israel. They have no idea what's going on in the Middle East, nor do they care. In fact, what's starting to happen now is the anti-Semitism is coming out of the churches. Bill Hybels, Willow Creek, and churches like that have actually had meetings in Bethlehem called Christ at the Checkpoint, which his wife sponsors, and it's total anti-Semite. It's pro-Palestinian. Isn't it funny how the false church is aligning herself with the whore of Babylon and the globalists? Isn't that funny how they're lining up with social justice? I find that amazing. It's not a mistake. It's because they're not alive. Now, the biggest thing they they didn't do, or I should say they maintained, and this is the death knell right here. The Catholic Church, as you know, was married to the state. They controlled the state. It was called the Holy Roman Empire. And when Constantine married the church with the state, it expanded, but man, it took off with a vengeance and became deadly. The Catholic Church is responsible for over 50 million deaths, putting down remnant believers or any factions or whatever that didn't support Catholic dogma. Well, when the Reformers broke away, they actually had protection because no one liked the Catholic Church. So when Luther broke away, he had Germany protecting him. And Calvin and Zwingli up there in Switzerland, they were protected by the states from the Catholic Church. So they were actually protected and allowed them to flourish. But here's what happened. They made the same mistake. They married Christianity to that state that they were in. So what happened is you had a state-run church. It never divorced itself. Now, what do you mean by that? Well, in Germany and Scandinavia, basically Martin Luther was the pope, and he used the government to put down any opposition. See, what they did is they broke away from the Catholic Church, for, and they hated the pope, but they became a pope themselves to, unto themselves. And they started regulating things according to the state. Now, think about this. When you marry the church with the state... What do you do in church discipline? Guess what? Church discipline becomes now an act of the state. And you could kill people legally because of that. So the Catholic Church is guilty for martyring a lot of believers and killing millions of people. Well, that's what they started doing as well if you didn't subscribe to their theology. I know this is plain a black eye on the reformers, but you need to know history. You need to know what happened. I know they make movies about these guys, but this is the real story. This is the real history. Basically, then, you had in England the state-ran church of the Anglican church. Still there today, dead on the doornail, right? The Anglicans came over here and now called themselves Episcopalians. Guess who the two most deadest churches in the world are? The Anglicans and the Episcopalians, dead on the doornail. Supporting gay marriage. They have lesbian priests and whatnot. They're dead on the door now. That's a state-run church, by the way. They're paid by the state still today. In Scotland, same thing happened. It was John Knox who became that pope and ruled over Scotland. Parts of Switzerland was controlled by Calvin. Another part of Switzerland controlled by the Zwinglian church. And they ruled with an iron fist. 
It's a different picture than what you probably have heard. But that's the reformers. They didn't go far enough because they married the church. In fact, they created their own fiefdoms, much like what the Catholic Church had. And then they had the backing of the state because the states like Germany and Switzerland wanted, didn't want anything to do with the Catholic Church telling them what to do. So it was all political dynamic. Okay, so here's what happened. Not only was it deadly because of church discipline, but the way you joined a church was to be baptized as an infant. Now, we already know baptism of infants is wrong. The Catholic Church was doing that. But they brought it over. Again, they didn't change it. That's why you go to some Presbyterians, you go to some Lutherans, you go to some, some churches, and they're still baptizing infants. That's a Catholic hangover. Still dealing with it. Well, the fact that they were baptizing infants, what they did is, if you want to become a member of the state, you will be baptized. There wasn't a child that was unbaptized, because to be a member of Germany, to be a member of Switzerland, you had to be baptized. That's where you got your membership into the state. So they were baptizing kids left and right, and saying, you're Christian now without that child ever growing up and experiencing any faith whatsoever. So people grew up under the auspices, I am Christian. Everybody in Germany is Christian. We're all Christian. No one ever thought they were a false convert, but they were, because the churches never emphasized faith in Jesus and accepting him. It was just automatic. And so the churches in Germany, the churches in Switzerland, Britain, deader than a doornail. A lot of activity because they had money from the state. The state kept them afloat, just like they do today, but deader than a door now. Now, let's bring it to America now. That movement of Sardis continues on, and then it moves into America. Now, you know and I know our history says we did not want a state church. Do you remember that? We did not want a church like the Anglican church telling American citizens, what to do. So it wasn't in our Constitution. It's not in our Bill of Rights. But, you know, like Thomas Jefferson wrote, we need to have a separation of church and state. Their concept of church and state is far different than what the liberals are saying today, right? They don't want any influence from Christianity. No, our founding fathers knew we wanted the influence of Christianity, but they just didn't want like a, a Luther-run state church where everyone had to be Lutheran or everyone had to be Anglican or everyone had to be Catholic. They didn't want that. So that's when, when Thomas Jefferson is writing, he's talking about that. We, do, we want to avoid that problem. Okay, because it, it caused so many problems in Europe. That's what happened here. So we didn't have that, right? And so America was given a, what we call a pluralistic society where you could have your free will in choosing what religion you wanted to. It's called freedom of religion, right? Which is coming under fire today. They don't like freedom of religion, along with they don't like freedom of speech either. So our founding fathers did that. So there's no state church. But the Sardis church still was here and is here today. And it came in the form of what's called denominationalism. Denominationalism. What do I mean by that? Well, you know the denominations, whether it's Methodist, Catholic, Presbyterian, Baptist. You just keep going down the list. You know what I'm talking about? They were part of a larger corporate body is the idea. Okay? Denominationalism is really not seen in Scripture. Because then you have a hierarchy controlling the other local churches underneath them, telling them what to do and how to run the thing. 
and it created deadness. The Methodists in the 1800s used to be on fire. They are now dead, by the way. You go to any Methodist church, they have no spirit whatsoever. They are dead. And I'm not talking off the top of my head. They're lost. I'm not saying there's not a few here and there that are saved and have good saved pastors, but the United Methodists, for instance, are, they're the ones marrying gays. They're the ones having lesbian pastors and gay pastors and stuff like that. That's, they're dead. You can't be a Christian and say, hey, that's okay. So what I'm saying is denominational started killing the churches in America and became dead. So Presbyterian USA, for instance, make note of what I'm saying, Presbyterian USA, not all Presbyterians, but like Presbyterian USA is completely, thoroughly anti-Semitic because of replacement theology. They're dead on their doornail. And you just go down the line. We just left the Southern Baptist Convention a couple years ago. You know why? Denominationalism. They're doing things that Christians shouldn't be doing. It's being ran by communitarians like Russell Moore and replacement theologies and hyper-Calvinists and things of that nature. It's fouled up, and they're letting the door creep into apostasy. That's why we left, because the denomination, no one is calling the denomination into account. It's too big. It's too large. Calvary Chapel, same thing. Once Chuck Smith died, everything's going crazy. They're literally having splits, just like the Southern Baptists are having. That happened to the American Baptists. That happened to all the other Baptists before that. But now it's happened to the Southern Baptists. The Southern Baptists and Calvary Chapels are the last two denominations to maintain its integrity, and it's gone now. They also are breaking up and splitting and fracturing off. And why? Because heresy fractures. Heresy splits. Because the church of Sardis is not alive. you got leaders in leadership that are not even saved. That's what starts happening. And so now... Don't be surprised if you watch Calvary Chapel crumble. Do not be surprised if you watch the Southern Baptists just completely split apart and crumble. I'm not saying they're not going to exist. I'm saying they're going to fracture. You're going to see a group come from the Calvary Chapel and be a remnant, and the rest of them are dead on the door now, and the same thing's going to happen to the Southern Baptists because it happened to every denomination since. So you can't ignore history. You're better off not being attached to denomination. Because the denomination will eventually corrupt because of Sardis. The dead believers will infiltrate. That's a little history to bring us into some perspective. But this is why Paul warned Timothy in the last days, they will have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. Remember that phrase? What did he mean by that? They'll look like a Christian. They'll smell like a Christian. They'll talk like a Christian. But they deny the real power. The real power is the Holy Spirit regenerating them and inside of them. They don't have it. They're dead. This is what Paul was talking about. Now, let's go to the exhortation that Jesus gives them. Number four, Jesus exhorts the false believers to become spiritually alive so that they will not be left behind. He exhorts them to become spiritually alive so they will not be left behind. Now, the spiritually alive means to be saved is what I'm referring to. And he is threatening them that if you continue this, I'm going to leave you behind. Verse 2, be watchful. Now, when you see that word, that's actually a technical word. I want you to underline or write off to the side of your note in your Bible. Be watchful is wedding language. It is wedding language that Messiah uses to teach about his coming. When the disciples asked him about his coming, the way he described it was in wedding language. Because the wedding, a Jewish wedding, was a whole surprise ceremony. 
He told the disciples before he left, before he went to the cross, I go to prepare a place for you. That's wedding language. Because you know what happened? When a guy wanted to marry someone, he met with the dad, and they have a cup of wine, and they would talk about the betrothal. And then once the deal was set, the kid would say to the wife, the potential wife sitting there, he'd say, I go to prepare a place for you. And he would leave. And he would go to his father's house and prepare an extra room that he would add it on. And then he would come back secretly when no one expected it and steal the bride away. And then he would take the bride home to his father's house and there would consummate the marriage. He would check to make sure she was, she was a virgin and then for seven days stay in the father's house. Then, once the seven days had expired, he would take her and then they would be met by virgins who would prepare a candlelight walkway for them at night, come usually at midnight, and they would come back and have a public wedding ceremony and a banquet. All that language of watch has to do with wedding language because the ten virgins, as I'll show you in a bit, had the watch for the bridegroom when the bride and the groom would come. Everyone had the watch. The bride had to be ready to go because he could come at any point in time, which you start seeing, oh, that makes total sense with the rapture and the second coming. Yeah, he's using wedding language. When you see Jesus say, watch, he's using technical language of a wedding ceremony, and in this sense... The watchfulness means to be saved. That's what it means. The only way you watch and are ready is that you're saved. You're ready to go. So he's employing that into his exhortation to them. And he goes, and strengthen or make stable the things which remain. Strengthen or go back to the doctrine that you have and actually believe it. Even though you have creeds on your website and you have statements of faith, you need to start practicing it. You actually need to believe that I'm God, that I died for your sins, because you don't. He goes, that they are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before my God, or complete is the idea here. Here's what's going on here. You cannot have spiritual life without good doctrine. We all understand that. But you... But what he's saying is all you have is good doctrine, but you have no spiritual life. You need both. I need you to go back to the doctrine and believe what it says. But a lot of people, they think they believe right and they have all their doctrine squared up, but they don't have a relationship with Jesus. It's like they know him and he's far off. He's not relational to them. When I talk about the abundant life, when I talk about praying to our Lord, and they have no concept of that. It's foreign to them. They see Jesus as, as kind of distanced from them because they don't have a relationship. They have doctrines, but they just, there's no relationship. You and I know him in a relational way. I talk about him as if he's with me all the time because he is. They don't. That language isn't, that escapes them. But they're doing a lot of things. And he goes, I not found your works perfect before, before my God. Let me give you three reasons why their works are not perfect. The first one is their source is wrong. Their source is wrong. That's why their works are incomplete. What do you mean by this, Brandon? Well, you and I do works for our Lord from the Holy Spirit's equipping and empowering. I preach from the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. I couldn't do it without His empowerment, without His gifting. So when you and I exercise our gifts, it's sourced in the Holy Spirit. He's the one allowing you to do this. When they do it, they have no source of the Holy Spirit. They're doing it out of their flesh. It's sourced wrong. And flesh 
can get results, but there's no impact spiritually from the flesh. Oh, yeah, I know what the formula is to grow a big church. I already know how to do it. But it's all from the flesh. I can grow a church from the flesh. Very simple. I'll just dumb this thing down to second grade level. We'll have a rock and roll band, and I'll put a fogs and lights and all this other stuff, and I'll bring in an Elvis impersonator on Easter. I guaranteed you I'd double over in one year. Guaranteed. I know what the formula is because it's all the flesh. It's all flesh. Nickels and noses, baby. Nickels and noses. That's a sign of worldly flesh. It's not a sign of the spirit. It's sourced wrong. That's why I left it. It was sourced in the flesh. Second thing, and the motivation is wrong. The Sardis church is doing Christianity in order to earn salvation. We don't serve Christ to gain salvation. We are already working from salvation in gratitude. That's why we serve him, for what he's done for us in gratitude. We don't serve to earn salvation, but they do. The Sardis church is working diligently. So when you see the Jehovah Witnesses going door to door, what do you think they're doing? Earning it, earning it, baby. That's what they're doing. And thirdly, their works are the wrong works. That's why their works are incomplete. What do you mean? God has specifically told you and I what he wants us to do. Simple, very simple. Evangelize and make disciples. Grow spiritually. That's it. Yeah, that's it. Now, it's easy to say, harder to do, right? But that's our walking orders. But what these people, the Sardis Church gets involved in, is all kinds of wrong works. A lot of churches involved in the social gospel. The Sardis church will get themselves involved in social justice. You tell me in the Great Commission where you find pure AIDS. You tell me in the Great Commission where it says to cure illiteracy. doesn't exist, right? Now, I'm not saying you can't use those as springboards in order to share the gospel, but we have the majority of churches participating in the wrong works. So those sin groups to Mexico or Central America to build homes. Great. They build a home and then they leave. And they come back to the church and they celebrate. Hey, we built a home, Habitat for Humanity. We built a home for these people. Great, but did you get them saved? Did you share the gospel? Well, no, that's not what we're really there for. We're there to show the love of Christ. And that's why we went to Africa and dug water wells. Did you share the the gospel with them? No, we're not there to do that. Then you failed. You failed. Because even if you dig a water well or build a house, the, the point is to use that as a springboard, say, I'm building you this house so I can share you the gospel, or I'm digging a water well so I can share the gospel. But 80% of the churches are now involved in social justice issues. And it's not the responsibility of the church. I can't reform this culture. The only way I can get anyone to change is to get them saved first. They got to become a believer first, and then they'll want to obey God. But I'm going to go tell a transgender, hey, man, you're all messed up. You need to have a psyche valve. You think they're going to buy that? You really think they're going to buy that? No, it doesn't work. My point is, how would I deal with a transgender? I share the gospel. That's how you do it. I share the gospel to get him saved, and then I can say, now this is how Jesus wants to free you from that lifestyle and from your identity crisis. They're doing all the wrong things. 
all the wrong works, and people are getting caught up in it and think, oh, that's Christianity. It's not Christianity. That's philanthropy. And let me tell you something, what's going on. The Sardis Church, because they practice social justice, is hooking up with Marxist, socialists, and communists today. They're going to rallies in Washington. They're going to to these liberal Marxist communist rallies because they think that's a good work that Christ would have them to do. How foolish. They're so off the mark. Well, what'd you expect from a Darnell? What'd you expect from a Tear? They don't know how theology works out into real life. So, so they, of course they support gay marriage. Of course they would. Do you see what's happening? I talked to Steve Kern, our main missionary down in El Salvador in Central America, doing a phenomenal work. I mean, he's led over a quarter of a, bill, a million people to the Lord. Think about it. 250,000 people to the Lord he's led. And he was telling Brandon, last time I was down, he said, Brandon, 80% of the mission work down here is social justice. Fixing their teeth, medical thing. And that's not bad, but what if you fix their teeth and then give them the gospel? You see how that works? But he goes, no, they're just coming down fixing their teeth. He goes, that's 80% of them, and they're not getting anyone saved. So great. If you cure someone of AIDS or cure someone of illiteracy, then what? They die and still go to hell. So I guess they go to hell in comfort. I mean, really, where does this work out? Where does people think that going to Africa, dealing in a water well, and saying, okay, now you have water for your village, it's helped them spiritually? It hasn't. They're still going to hell because they're worshiping the tree, the tree god. It's a problem, isn't it? But what, what has it turned into? You know, the American church has bought into this. And so what's happening in these American churches? Well, you've got the practice of worshiptainment. They say, man, if you really want to grow your numbers and, and have a lot of activity, man, have a, have a rock and roll band and have a light show and just, you know, play ACDC, Highway to Hell at, at Easter time and, and just say, and if anyone complains about it, it complains about the fog and the smoke, say this is for evangelistic purposes. And people buy that. If I put a smoke and fog thing up here, and you say, Brandon, what are you, crazy? And I say, it's for evangelism purposes. You need to remove me. Okay? I just want you to drag me out, get the deacons, and say, he's done. He's, he's lost it. A f- who in the world? I just imagine, I heard this the other day. Imagine the Apostle Paul walking into a modern church and seeing a, a fog machine. And seeing some dude up there that looks like Prince and he's, he's dancing around or, or whoever or, uh, you know, uh, Michael Jackson impersonator doing thriller on there because churches did this. I'm not making these things up. I've actually seen this. And doing thriller on stage and telling people this is for evangelism. What do you think the Apostle Paul would say? I think he would first say, what did you guys do to the church? What happened? We laid the foundation. You guys blew it in smithereens. Wow, that's Sardis for you. And then you start going to see, you're going to see their pastors and they're going to be so hip. They're going to have the skinny jeans because they're going to be relatable, right? They're going to have the open shirts with their hair busting out, right? Because they're cool, right? You can see them on TV. And bless God, I, I puked twice in my mouth looking at a guy wearing skinny jeans preaching up there. I just couldn't take it. I just couldn't take it. I just thought, what, what would, what would David think about that? You know? 
And they're doing things like that. Or they have the grunge look, and I'm just going to be cool, man. I'm not even going to dress up today. I'm just going to wear flip-flops, and I'm just going to hang out, man. I'm just going to talk. I just listened to one of those guys this last week just, just, just for edification, not edification, but just for learning. The dude got up there in his grunge look. He talked for nearly 10 minutes about him and his wife, gave a 20-minute second-grade level of interpretation of something. He told me nothing that the text didn't tell me itself. And then went on and talked about the, the, the ushers for the next 10 minutes. He spent 30 minutes talking about nothing. And you know what people left? And they said, oh, man, that's great. Man, that's cool, dude. That was deep, man. That was deep. It's a joke. It's Sardis. Deep the day is kindergarten-level type of teaching. Okay, that being said, he's warning them, you need to get salvation. Look in verse 3. He says, remember, therefore, how you have received and heard, and hold fast and repent. Now, here's the deal. You're not without excuse. You have received the word of truth. The church of Sardis has the scriptures. They have good creeds and doctrines of faith, and that makes them culpable. You're not ignorant. This is not somebody in the Amazon River that's never heard of Christ. This is These are church people, grew up in a church. Therefore, here it comes. If you will not watch, become saved. I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You will be completely caught off guard. And by the way, this is a reference to the rapture. You will be left behind. Do not think you're secure just because you're running multi-million dollar programs, and you have a multi-million dollar budget, and you have a large staff, and you have plenty of space. I'm going to leave you behind because I don't know you. Wow, that's scary. Let me show you some topography so you can understand some of where this language is coming. Not only is it coming from the, the Jewish wedding language, and I'll show you in just a bit. It's actually Jesus is using the history of Sardis and their topography to make this point. Let me give you the history. It's very interesting. Sardis sits on an acropolis. It's a very high hill. And like I told you, they had a lot of money, and they thought they were invincible. No one could ever attack them, by the way. Especially King Midas thought this, by the way. Now let me show you some other pictures. And you can see how high the terraces are and the cliffs. It's like almost sheer to get up to the top of Sardis, right? And here's some other pictures of the mountains. Just imagine the city on top of that, right? And then this is what you had to scale. This is why they thought, look at the sides of that. We're invincible. No one can t attack us. And they're right. With the topography, how are you going to attack a city on the top of a, a, a sheer face like that? So they became overconfident that nothing could ever happen to them. And you know what happened? Someone did. It was General Cyrus at the time. And you know him from the Bible in Isaiah as Cyrus the Great. He eventually became the king of Persia. And Cyrus, by the way, was prophesied by Isaiah, right, to let the Jews go back from the Babylonian captivity, if you recall. He was the great one, the great Cyrus that let them out. Okay, when he was a general of the Persian army, he attacked Sardis. And you know what happened? They were camped out below here, and they're try trying to figure out how to get to it. One of his soldiers was watching... And the, the Sardis soldier was, was doing his rounds on the top of the, the wall there, on the top of Sardis, and the dude lost his helmet. 
and his helmet went rolling down the side of the cliff. Now, the Persian soldier watched this, and he was looking, and he watched the soldier use a secret escape route and a secret trail to go down and get his helmet. And he went right back up that secret trail. And at that point, the Persian soldier told Cyrus, I found a secret trail of how to infiltrate. So Cyrus does a sneak attack. He goes in there at night when everyone's sleeping, and they go through the secret trail, and they attack and take Sardis. And no one knew because he came as a thief in the night. So Jesus is not only using their history and topography, but he's also using the Jewish language. You're going to be caught off surprise. And you know what a lot of the thought in the Sardis church is? They think they're going to Christianize the entire planet, and then Jesus returns. It doesn't work that way. It actually is going to get worse before he returns. But they, that's why they're going to get caught. They're busy trying to bring in the kingdom without the king. How crazy is that? Who thinks like that? Oh, people who don't interpret the Bible correctly. Tares, Darnell, right. That's who thinks like that. Let me give you the wedding language real quickly before we wrap things up and show you what Jesus is referring to because he talked even about Israel about this, about in the tribulation what would happen. And this is in Matthew 25. He goes, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. And again, this is the wedding language. The bride and the groom have consummated, and they're coming back for the marriage feast. So in this passage, it's Israel who's going to receive Messiah back. It's a reference to Israel in the tribulation, but again, it's the same principle. I want you to see this. Now, five of them were wise and five foolish. The idea is that's the Old Testament understanding. Wise means they're saved. Foolish means they're unbelievers. That's how you interpret that. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. They didn't even bother taking the oil. By the way, the oil represents the Holy Spirit. Anytime you see oil, it's a representation of the Holy Spirit. So they didn't take any with them. They didn't need the Holy Spirit. You see the, the idea here? They weren't saved. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. So that's the Holy Spirit. But while the bridegroom was delayed, seven days, seven years, tribulation, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, the cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. And they would have to go out there with their lamps and light the way. So Israel is to prepare the way of Messiah. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, the believers said, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. They wanted them to share their salvation. You see what I'm saying? And you can't do that. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with them to the wedding. The door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. That's got to be the worst words you could possibly ever hear. If you thought you were a believer, you thought you were going to heaven, and Jesus says, I don't know who you are. I've never had a relationship with you. You've been playing a game with me. It's a joke. It's not real. Yikes. Let me end on this, because this is, this is for people who think they're a believer. If you think sitting in a church week after week makes you a Christian, that's the same mindset of you thinking that you go into a garage and that makes you a car, right? 
It's the same mindset. It just, it's not an automatic. You think, well, my, my uncle was a pastor. My daddy was a pastor. My uncle this. My, I've heard all that when I've questioned people, are you saved? And they'll say, they'll tell me someone in their family who's a, a, a strong Christian. And I'm like, you're not going to ride their coattails. I'm sorry. You're not going to ride anyone's coattails. You're going to stand individually for yourself in with Messiah and deal with him. And you're going to have to express either whether you rejected him or had faith. It's on you, man. You're not going to get by by belonging to denominations because a lot of people in denominations says, well, I'm, I'm a, I'm a Presbyterian. I'm a, I'm a Baptist. I'm this. That doesn't make you saved either. The idea in the parable of the virgins, you cannot share salvation. You can't write anyone coattails. You've got to make that decision. Now, I know I'm freaking to the choir and most of you are saved, but I'm talking to that individual who's sitting here and are lost as a ball in high weeds and doesn't even know it. Because you have not expressed faith in Messiah. You've went through the mechanics. You might have been baptized. You might have joined the church or anything, but you're still lost because you have not believed. It's that simple. You have to believe in Messiah, the person and work of Messiah. I'll give you a story and we'll wrap it up. I was reading a story about Pearl Harbor this last week, and uh, Roy Robinson was a gunner on one of the ships that got attacked at Pearl Harbor. Anyway, interesting story. The night before they got attacked at Pearl Harbor, they had a Bible study. And uh, he was invited to come to this Bible study, and they kind of did a, a share fest type of thing. And he was asked, what's your favorite scripture by the chaplain? And they were going around asking what their favorite scriptures are. And he says, I sat there and I couldn't think of one. And he goes, here I am. And he goes, you know, I'm, I'm 20-something years old. My mom took me to church. I went to Bible study. I went to Sunday school, all this other stuff. And here I am being asked what my favorite verse is. And I can't even answer the chaplain. And he says, he just, they skipped over him. And, and he's like, I can't think of one. And so they skipped over him. And he went to bed that night on the ship. And he said to himself, Robertson, you're just a fake. You're just a fake. Anyway, he went to bed at 7.55 that next morning. As you know, Japan attacked. And he awakened, and they were ordered to their ship battalions and their things, and he was a gunner. And he says 360 planes came in and was attacking the, all the, the ships in Pearl Harbor. Anyway, he said, for the first 15 minutes, we didn't have live rounds. We were firing blanks because we had been practicing the next day. And so they had to go and get the weapons for us. And so while we're firing at the Japanese, we're firing blanks. We're firing practice ammunition, and we're just trying to do it to scare them. And he thought to himself, why he's firing at Japanese bombers coming in and kamikazes coming in with blanks. He's firing blanks. He said, Robertson, your whole life has been firing blanks like this. It's empty. You have nothing behind you. And he goes, I thought, I'm going to die. I'm going to die right now, and I'm going to go to hell without Christ. And so he, he prays one of those prayers that you pray in a foxhole, God, if you get me out of this, I will serve you the rest of my life, and I will accept your son as Savior, become a believer, and serve you the rest of my life. Well, he made it out. He made it out. And you know what? He lived up to that promise he made to God. He did get saved. And he served the Lord. And you may know him as one of the first missionaries of the Navigators. He did a lot with the Billy Graham Crusades early on in life with that. But I like what he said. 
He finally came to the self and said, I've been firing blanks with my whole life. I need Jesus. I pray the Sardis Church will accept Jesus before it's too late. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.